Lord, do what you do. That is that you love your people through your word. And so you, we ask for that kind of revival. Revival of repentance and of faith. And just more of Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. There's a story told some years ago about a world-renowned scholar of the classics, Dr. Evie Rayo, who had just completed a great translation of Homer into modern English language for the Penguin Classic series. He was 60 years old and been an agnostic his entire life. And after that great translation, a publisher approaches him and asks him if he'd be willing to translate the Gospels. Well, Dr. Rue's son, upon hearing this, said it would be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. Well, the son didn't have to wait long. Within a year, Evie Ryu, lifelong agnostic, committed his life to Jesus by simply translating the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so before we begin asking ourselves in this sermon series, what do we make of Mark? What are we to make of Mark? What are we to make of the second Gospel? Here's where we want to begin this sermon series. What will Jesus make of me? As I am reintroduced to Jesus through the pen of Mark, what will become of me? As I am reintroduced to Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his rule, his way, his discipleship, how will God remake me and reorder my life after the life and teachings and sufferings of Jesus, as I take another look, a vital look, an important look at the life and teachings of Jesus. Honest admission as a preacher, I think it's often easier to preach on a Daniel or Job or Ephesians because we Christians think we already know all about Jesus, that we've been taught the parables, we've heard about the miracles, and what's more, we know where the story is going, to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus by the end of the gospel. And so it's also very, very, very familiar. And yet, what would it be like for you and for me to be reintroduced to Jesus through the pen of Mark? Astonished, just like the crowd. Overwhelmed and confused, perhaps just like the disciples, strengthened by the suffering Jesus in our own sufferings as Jesus heads resolutely to Jerusalem to face his trial and to face the cross. Then raised victorious as the Son of God with complete victory over death. Can we see anew who Jesus is? Can we pray again for God to show us Jesus? So many of us, we started this Christian journey so fascinated, so intrigued, so overwhelmed by the goodness and the love and the compassion and the holiness of Jesus. Jesus came in like a lightning rod into our lives. You and I, we came as beggars and as sinners 
and Jesus forgave us, and Jesus taught us, and Jesus transformed our very lives. And so it is my prayer that we would be reintroduced to our first love, Jesus, through this sermon series on Mark. And so will you let that be your prayer during this sermon series? Won't you pray with me, Lord, show me Jesus. A simple prayer, a revolutionary prayer, a transforming prayer for your life and mine. Lord, show me Jesus yet again. Make me fascinated and interested and curious again about who this Jesus really is. What will Jesus make of me as I take a long and purposeful gaze at the Son of God? What will God do with our church as we focus our gaze again upon Jesus? In fact, I want to ask you a question at the outset of this sermon series on Mark. Right now, what would you say is the level of your curiosity about Jesus. As you look at your life, as you look at how you're living your life right now, what is the level of your curiosity about Jesus? Is it hot or is it cold? Has your curiosity waned or are you, are you increasingly being captured by a picture of who Jesus is? On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your curiosity about Jesus? Don't you know that your, your spouse, if your curiosity about your spouse is at like a 2 or 3 or 4, guess what? That's a tough marriage. Dr. Larry Crabb, I remember him saying to me as I was going off to study again at the University of Edinburgh, spiritual week, a spiritual direction, he said, Study your wife. Be curious about your wife. And it's counsel I'll never forget. The same counsel holds true about Jesus. What is your level of curiosity about Jesus? And my hope is through this sermon series, we can reclaim our interest and our overwhelming intrigue and curiosity and passion about who Jesus is. Now, the Gospel of Mark is laid out in three acts. We might say three great scenes. First act, his ministry in Galilee, first, uh, you know, first chapter through the eighth. And then there's this pivot point in the middle of the eighth chapter. Jesus begins to take his disciples on a journey as they go and travel to Jerusalem. And then act three, Jerusalem and the cross, a long, sustained ministry of his last days there in Jerusalem. And so, what are we going to do? Act one, we're going to tackle right from now until summer, and then we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to do some other things. But then the fall, again, we're going to go act two. What does it mean for Jesus' radical nature of discipleship? What is he trying to tell us? as a church, as individuals, as he tries to explain discipleship to his knuckle-headed disciples, right? And Act 3, 
Jerusalem and the cross. We're going to take another break for Advent and for Christmas. And then 2024, we're going to end up Acts 16 on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday 2024, finishing the book of Mark. And so, I hope you like the book of Mark. Forty or so sermons with a couple big breaks. Early testimony of the church, second century, describes Mark's gospel like this. He says, after the death of these, referring to Paul and Peter, pillars of the early church, Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter, also transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. Now, who was this Mark that wrote the gospel? You might remember Peter, his third time in prison. First two times, he was just there for questioning. Third time might have ended in his death if it were not for a miraculous angelic deliverance from prison in Acts chapter 12. And so after his release from prison, after this miracle, where does Peter go? Acts 12, 12 says this. Well, he went to the house of Mary, who's Mary? The mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so it was that Mark's childhood home in Jerusalem might be considered one of the very first churches in the Christian era. You might remember Mark being the cousin of Barnabas, as Paul describes him in Colossians 4.10, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Yet Mark decides to go back to Jerusalem when Paul and Barnabas continue inland into Asia, which eventually led Paul to choose Silas, and Mark and Barnabas go on their own way on Paul's second missionary journey. It was not all smooth sailing in the early church. There were disagreements. There were divisions. And though the details are fuzzy about how it all came about, Paul was later reconciled to Mark, calling him my fellow worker in Philemon, verse 24, and asking Timothy to bring Mark all the way back to Rome since he would be useful to Paul in his Roman imprisonment. But more than Paul, it was Mark's special relationship with Peter that would form the basis of the gospel of Mark. And so just as Luke, it was thought, you know, remained to the bitter end with Paul until his death, it's also believed that Mark remained with Peter until the bitter end of Peter's death in Rome. Peter even calls Mark his son in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so Mark, hearing the apostolic preaching and the stories and the teaching and tales of Jesus from Peter, writes a gospel with many, many, many eyewitness details that must surely have come only from the apostle Peter's own experiences with Jesus. Mark's gospel is also called sometimes the Roman gospel. Of the four gospels, the original audience was probably the Roman church. Most scholars believe that Mark was written either right before or right after Peter's death in Rome after the horrific fire that devastated much of the city of Rome in 64 AD. But Mark probably wrote the gospel after that Roman fire, but before the, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he's writing somewhere the last half of the 60s AD. Indeed, the blame for the fire in Rome 
And 64 was placed squarely on the shoulders of those Christians residing in Rome. You might have heard that Nero fiddled on the roof while Rome burned. Well, I would submit to you that's very difficult to do since the fiddle was only invented in the 10th century. (laughs) Call me a skeptic. But it is very true that Rome was scapegoating horribly and horrifically many, many Christians whose lives ended with persecution and martyrdom of the early church. Some estimates, 3,000 to 3,500. So picture a couple mega churches gone, deaths, martyrs. Historian, Roman historian says it like this. The rest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as for hatred of the human race. Remember, Jesus said, whoever follows me must eat human flesh and drink my blood. Well, people took that a bit literally and started to to persecute these Christians. Every sort of derision was added to their deaths. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts, dismembered by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Others, when daylight failed, set were set afire to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle, and many died to gratify the cruelty of a single man. And so there's several clues in Mark's gospel that he's writing from and in a situation of immense suffering and horrific persecution. For instance, there's a detail found only in Mark's gospel that during Jesus' temptation, that Jesus, Mark says, and he was with the wild animals. A little detail that would have reminded Mark's audience in Rome, some whom who had died in the Roman Colosseum by being ripped to shreds by wild beasts. That Jesus, too, faced a situation of crisis and persecution. That Jesus, too, was a unduly and unjustly scapegoated by Rome, that Jesus was the kind of Savior that a martyred and persecuted church in Rome could identify with in their own crisis, in their own suffering. Friends, aren't you glad that you have a Savior who identifies with the down and the out, even the persecuted, the suffering, going through these deep, deep trials of faith? Have you ever experienced a crisis in life? Have you ever gone through a season of suffering? What's Mark trying to say to you? Jesus will walk with you. Every time, every time there's a crisis, a trauma in your life, a suffering, Jesus is the kind of Savior who knows what it means to be surrounded with wild animals. Another detail found only in Mark is Jesus' comment. For everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus himself was salted with fire as his own disciples abandoned him. Jesus warns of the, in the parable of the sower that when affliction or persecution arise on account of the word, some immediately fall away. Mark has been characterized as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And so was this extended introduction followed to the march to the cross and to the crucifixion away 
of communicating solidarity of Jesus with these Roman Christians undergoing such crisis and such suffering and martyrdom. A passion narrative with an extended introduction. Mark seems to be a Roman gospel. Yet curiously, he demands a robust knowledge of the Old Testament. Why? Because his Jewish heritage, Mark knew that Jesus is continuing the story of Yahweh. Yahweh's rescue. Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh's redemption through the life and through the death of Jesus. This is not a new story, but this is a story newly told about Jesus and his relationship to God. In fact, uh, another detail unique to Mark's gospel actually occurs when Jesus is hanging on the cross. You might have read through this line several times and really didn't pay much attention to it. It says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, myrrh was a very, very precious and luxurious spice. And wine mixed with myrrh was one of the most expensive wines in the entire ancient world. This is not a $12 bottle of yellowtail, right, that you buy at Publix. This is not the open bar that you drink at your cousin's wedding. Wine mixed with myrrh was the kind of wine that you'd only expect to see in the cellars of a palace. And so what is Mark trying to say to these Roman Christians as Jesus hangs on the cross? A Roman audience reading this small detail would have thought straight away, this is a wine reserved only for kings. This is not just a Jewish criminal hanging on a cross, but the one true king who has come to save and rescue us all, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true king, even and especially as he hangs on the cross. So as we go through the gospel of Mark, you're going to see two great themes emerging, often tied intimately together, Christology and discipleship. Now, Mark's gospel is not just a story of Jesus, but it's also a story of his disciples. How do I live with Jesus? Can you ask that question as well as we go through the gospel of Mark? Isn't that a great question to ask? How do I live my ordinary life with and in the presence of Jesus? How do I be a disciple of this crucified Messiah. And yet Mark, more than any other gospel, amplifies the failures of his disciple. Now, if I was Peter, you know, in my pride, I'll be like, Mark, you know, there's some things that, you know, I don't want, I'm not going to really tell you, just sort of leave those out of the gospel. That's not what Mark does. The disciples, they fail to understand his mission. They fail to understand prayer. They fail to understand the parables. They fail to understand the feeding of the 5,000. They're often fearful in the presence of Jesus. They're often motivated by selfish ambition. And they ultimately betray or deny or desert Jesus in his most critical time of need, right before the trial and right before the cross. David Garland puts it like this. 
Mark does not present the disciples as models for the readers to imitate, but as mirrors in which the audience, you and I, can view their own foibles and failures as followers of Jesus. Have you ever failed Jesus? If you're like me, you're like 50 times this week, yesterday, the day before, the whole week, I show up, I've failed Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed about how you live the Christian life? And so Mark is actually inviting you through the gospel of Mark not to sit in judgment over these disciples like you would have gotten it right, but rather identify with them in their inadequacies. In fact, you begin to realize it's the, through the weaknesses and failures of the disciples that they experience, that we experience the grace and the power of Jesus in our own lives. Do you get this? That Jesus never discards the twelve for a more gifted group, for a more knowledgeable group, for a more group that, you know, understands what really ministry is all about. He is unflinchingly faithful to them in their weaknesses. So what does Paul say? When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul puts it, you know, truth, one simple sentence. Mark sort of makes this truth into a long story called the gospel of Mark. What is Mark trying to say about Jesus? Don't you hear him saying that Jesus is with you in your failures? That Jesus is with you in your worst moments as you look back on your life? Those moments where everyone else around you is shaking their head when you are thinking, I am can't believe it again when you're thinking guilt and shame that Jesus will still stick by you. That's what gospel of Mark is trying to say through these knuckle-headed disciples. That Jesus, there's something about Jesus that sticks with you, that sticks with me, even when we wouldn't stick by ourselves. Mark 1.1 Seven words in the Greek, it goes like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as you know from Advent, from Christmas, Matthew and Mark start with the birth of Jesus. John starts with this famous prologue. But Mark, man, he can't wait to jump right into the action. He starts with John the Baptist. John, Mark uses the word immediately 42 times in the gospel. The gospel of Mark is the gospel of action. And Mark also uses very frenetically this word and, 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 stringing these ideas together which moves the story along. And instead of using the, you know, the past tense, like Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Mark uses this, the historical present over 150 times. Jesus heals, Jesus calls, Jesus rebukes, Jesus teaches, which gives the gospel of Mark its breathless pace. And so for a Roman audience that was often in a hurry, for American audience that we have our own pace of life, we love the gospel of Mark. It is the gospel of action. Jesus comes to act and act and act again. And he's sent on a purpose and with a mission. But Mark starts in the gospel, like the gospel of John, with a beautiful echo from Genesis. You don't have to be a huge Bible scholar to get it. Right, the beginning of 
the gospel. What is Mark trying to say? James Edwards says like this, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. What is Jesus' ministry like? How significant is Jesus? Well, Mark wants to say, it's as momentous as the creation of light and animals and plants. Indeed, the entire earth, a new creation is being birthed in and through the ministry of Jesus. And so Mark's opening salvo means that the creation of the new world, creation is taking place with the arrival of King Jesus. When, Jesus, when God said, let there be light, wow, same as being occurred as Jesus comes in to the scene. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, gospel from the Greek word euangelion, from you meaning good, angelion, message or news. Now, again, in the context of a Roman audience, they would have heard this as a context, in the context of a momentous announcement, a great, far away military victory, a gospel, heralding news, the arrival in the beginning of a new Roman, Roman empire. This is good news for Roman ears. An inscription was found which dates to 6 BC in modern day Turkey. Puts it like this The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the euangelion, concerning him, the most divine Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, having become God manifest, fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Do you get this? Caesar Augustus is declared to be divine, a Savior, beginning of good news for all the people of the world. This is the Pax Romana. And so when Mark writes, this is the beginning of the gospel, of Jesus Christ some 70 years later, what do you think Mark is saying? That even though Rome may persecute and martyr Christians, this gospel is a direct challenge to Rome, a direct challenge to its might and rule, not a triumph by victory, not a triumph by might or through military force, the servant king is the picture of Christology that emerges from the gospel of Mark. And it's good news, world-shaping news, earth-shattering news, euangelion. Not good advice, something you should do. Not good advice, something you have to do. Good news, something that God has done for you. Jesus came. News to free you, news to save you, news to redeem you as the servant king. Mark 10, 45, some of you have it memorized. For the Son of Man came not to what? Be served, but what? But, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark is saying Caesar's come and go. The gospel, this euangelion changes the world. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for all time and forever. Finally, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, two watershed confessions occur in the Gospel of Mark. And it's the theological and literary genius of Mark that they are both introduced here in the very first verse of Mark as a way of foreshadowing what is to come. The first confession 
is a Jewish confession. It occurs in Caesarea Philippi by Peter in Mark 8.29. Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ translates the Hebrew word Messiah. And so Jesus as Messiah means that the story continues for the Old Testament people of God. And that just as Yahweh redeemed and walked with his people, so now we see Yahweh as we glimpse a, a picture of who Jesus is in the gospel. Second watershed confession is made by the centurion. This is a Gentile, Gentile outsider, captain of the execution squad. But even this enemy recognizes something important when he sees the cross, when he sees Jesus suffer and die on the cross. What does he say? Surely, this is the Roman climax, this is the Roman watershed confession, surely this man was the Son of God. Even the Roman centurion, even enemies can recognize Jesus for who he is as he hangs on the cross. And isn't this also good news for you and me? That we were once enemies of God? And if you are an enemy of God here today, if you've never surrendered your life and bowed before Jesus, even enemies of God, like we all once were, can see the power and the grace of God in Jesus as he hangs on the cross as the servant king. Surely this man was a son of God. And so if that's here for you today, can you come up after the service, confess with this Roman centurion, with this outsider, surely you are Jesus, the Son of God. Two questions. What is your temperature? What's the scale of your curiosity about who Jesus is? Do you need the Gospel of Mark? Do you need another look? An important look about who Jesus is for your life. How can I live with Jesus? Can you pray that God reintroduces you to his son? Second is this. Can you pray during this sermon series? Oh, Lord, show me Jesus. Oh, Lord, forgive me when my curiosity wanes, when my interest subsides, when I'm not really interested in, like, what do, I, what do my life look like when Jesus is just there for me all the time that I can pray for him and I can think about what he did and what he might do in my life? Lord, show me Jesus. If you do that, oh Lord, my life would be transformed from the inside out. And so can you pray that your curiosity is stoked? Can you say with the disciples, they often said this again and again and again in the Gospels, who is this man? He calms the sea. He feeds the 5,000. He heals. And the disciples are often left. Well, who is this man? It's amazing. They're intrigued. They're curious. They want to know more. They want to follow him all the way to Rome to die on cro upside down crosses as the tradition goes for some of the early apostles. Only a passionate curiosity sends us out into this hurting world. Only a passionate curiosity stirs our soul and says, no, I am not going to live a mediocre Christian life 
Jesus died for me, the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. Can I bend the knee of my own self-interest, my own self-will, and come and stoop and pray and know what it means to follow Jesus? Let's pray. God, we give you our lives again. Lord, we thank you again for Jesus, the head of the church, the one worthy of our worship, the one that teaches us to pray, the one that wants to transform our lives like he transformed so many people wherever he walked and taught there in the first century. And so won't you give us a glimpse again by your mercy and your grace to know Jesus. Who is this man for me? Who is this man who forgives me again and again? Who is this man that stands with me again and again through my own trials and my own sufferings and my own crises? It's Jesus, Lord. And so won't you, Jesus, be big for us as a church. We ask in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Please stand and join us for our closing chorus.
like the sound of a symphony in my ears. Like holy water, your forgiveness. Like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. Like the sound of a symphony in my ears. Like holy As Heather said, there will be folks to pray for you here. And if you've been an enemy of God, and you say, today is the day I just want to lay it down. I just want to confess Jesus and pray to receive His mercy and His grace and His transforming work in your life. There will be people here to pray for you, to enter you into the very kingdom of God. People pray with you as you start this journey again with Jesus. Maybe your curiosity has waned and grown cold. You just want to say, Lord, help me. Fill me. Give me your passion for your son again. The altar will be open. There is a Super Bowl-themed brunch ready for you, free to you. And uh, i got to say, I had nothing to do with all the Chiefs things out on the tables. I, that was a surprise to me. But uh, if we're going to do this, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, Jersey Day, I might just have to get you, like, all Chiefs jerseys because we just sh keep showing up there, my team. <laughs> Three out of four years. I I'll just bring you, like, Chiefs jerseys. Here we go. And so one last thing we're doing for Mike Elmer, who was ordained and installed as a minister of word and sacrament last week. If you want to stop by, sign the stole, so years later, wherever the Lord takes him, we hope that he keeps the Elmers here for a very long time. But when he's, you know, old and aging, he can look back on all these names and remember with fondness you, the church that ordained him and installed him as a pastor. And so go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the enduring fellowship of the Holy Spirit both today and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>